0: Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, I'm Kelly Brownell, the Director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University, and I welcome you to our most recent podcast. Uh, We're delighted to have with us today Tom Zicke, who is the Vice President for Sustainable Development for United Natural Foods, an Executive Officer responsible for Environmental Initiatives. I found out about Tom from an article in a magazine that discussed the very progressive uh, sustainability movements the company was making. And I was also surprised to find out just how big the company is and uh, to see what kind of an impact they can have on the food supply nationwide. So, uh, Tom, welcome. and delighted to have you here. Thank you very much. Thanks Pleasure for to ju- be here. Thanks for joining us. So first, could you tell us a little bit about the company sure. and, and what it does?
1: Happy to. United Natural Foods is the nation's largest distributor of natural and organic products. Uh, we have uh, about $3.3 billion in annual sales, we have 22 distribution facilities around the United States covering 6.2 million square feet and nearly 5,800 employees nationwide, so uh, headquartered here in Connecticut um, and uh, a company that continues to grow year over year. Uh, when we moved to Connecticut back in the uh, mid-80s, I think we are about a $100 million company. Uh, And so, uh, you know, we're a $3.3 billion company now selling uh, over 40,000
0: different products of natural and organic food to thousands and thousands of customers around the country. So some of the products, uh, many of them are are products made by other companies that you then distribute, but you have some brands that you own yourself. That's correct.
1: Uh, You know, most of the products that we sell are, are products that you'd be familiar with if you shop at a natural and organic food store. Uh, but our company has also, over the years, developed about 700 different product lines uh, that we, we've acquired or developed in, in-house uh, from a variety of things. It goes all the way from, uh, you know, cereals to uh, milks and butters and and you know a variety of products: frozen vegetables, frozen fruits uh, that we sell to the retailers
0: uh, within our, our niche of marketplace. Okay, as, as you and I were talking about as we were preparing to do this. Um, People are becoming more interested in the story of their food, and they're they're becoming more interested in knowing where it's grown, how many miles it's been shipped, what the carbon footprint is of, of the food they eat and the like. And people are also becoming very interested in whether the companies that they get products from, including food products, are behaving in sustainable ways. And uh, your company, as much as any company I've heard of, is taking this extremely seriously. And, and in a moment, we can talk about exactly what you're doing. But it's stunning, yeah. I think I would say. Um, but tell us why. Why is the company interested in this? Is this something where, where profitability and the public's good can come together? Or is it just what is the philosophy behind
1: yeah, it? Yeah, the philosophy, I mean, you know, the company has been around for more than 30 years. And you know, at our root is you know, organic farming. Um, And when you think about organic farming, you know, we're talking about sustainable agriculture. You're talking about uh, marine stewardship. You're talking about the way that food is grown and how uh, there's a partnership between food and the land and the farmers and a fair wage for people that that work in the industry and things of that nature. So, you know, at our core, the food products that we sell and the retailers that we sell to – Uh, and ultimately the consumers that buy this product, are all tied into the same value system. I mean, that is, you know, how is my food being grown and is it being done in a sustainable way? So as a company, for 30 years, we've always been, you know, tied to these environmental initiatives, but never so much in a way that was uh, overt. You know, we we just did it because that's what we did and that was our business. We didn't talk about it too much. And even though we did great things, we just didn't go out and crow about it you know, quite honestly, we're a distributor. We're the middleman, right? We're not the manufacturer, so we don't have advertising. Uh, We're not selling directly to the consumers, so we don't have people that buy stuff directly from us. You know, our consumers are the retailers, those mom and pop independent stores, uh, you know, the companies like Whole Foods, the the larger grocery chains around the country. Um, So, you know, it's always been part of our mission. And a few years ago, we decided that, you know, we've been doing good things and we need to talk about it and we need to actually make a more concerted effort uh, to do more good things and so my position was created to just do that to focus on the things that we we're doing uh, to improve them uh, to broaden awareness of the things our company does and to spread the word you know around the country and that's what i've been doing
0: okay and obviously it's making a big difference so tell us some of the things the company has been involved with
1: well um you know since since i got uh put in this role First thing we did was uh, I registered the first warehouse project that we constructed uh, in the northwest as a LEED certified building. I made a determination that if we're going to do new distribution centers as our company continues to grow uh, we need to do that in an environmentally responsible way. So, uh, Can you explain what LEED certification yes, is? Yes. The LEED, uh, for those of you from not familiar, is uh, stands for Leadership in, in Energy and Environmental Design. Uh, and, and what it is is it's a guiding principle on how buildings become more energy efficient, uh, and better for the environment and it, it breaks it down into a number of dis- different categories including you know uh, resource use, uh, materials, methods, uh, site selection, you know, a variety of things that go into any building project and um, so what happens is the U.S. Green Building Council uh, is the uh, organization, it's a volunteer organization essentially membership driven um, that administers the LEED uh, process And and what you do is it's essentially a point system where you get points for doing things that are better than the average building, if you will. And so if you can reduce your energy consumption uh, by changing out the type of lighting that you would do compared to a normal building and save 20% of your electricity, then you'll get credit for that. And uh, it's a point system where the more points you accumulate, the higher your certification level goes. And it goes from certified all the way up to platinum. Um, and so with this project, we're right on the cusp right now in, in Ridgefield, Washington. Of uh, being gold certified, uh, and if we achieve that status, we'll be the first refrigerated distribution center ever to re- achieve uh, gold standard uh, for the lead certification. And and right now it's just one point that we're haggling over. Uh, it has to do with uh, lighting on the property and whether it encroaches on the neighbor's land or not. And so uh, we're hopeful that we're going to get the gold, and, and we feel like we've done a great job, you know, constructing the building nonetheless. So what are
0: the things that you've done with that building
1: to well, um, reach that level? Y- y- just to give you an example, every uh, light fixture that we have. Uh, in the warehouse uh, which is a 248,000 square foot warehouse has a motion sensor on it so as you travel down a grocery aisle the light fixtures will come on uh, when they need to in order to go ahead and uh, assist the selector in selecting their product. Uh, when you have a big warehouse, there's a lot of products that don't ever get selected, unfortunately, and so there are areas of the warehouse that rarely get people going down to them, and so those lights stay off until they need to come on when somebody gets in the area. Um, so we, we did uh, dual flush uh, water closets um, in, in the, uh, the green handles on, on the, uh, the flusher valve, if you've ever seen that, uh, waterless urinals, motion sensors. Uh, in in offices uh, to go ahead and shut the lights off when nobody's home. Um, We did things like uh, uh, Forestry uh, Stewardship Council certified wood for all the wood that was used in the project. Uh, an incredible amount of recycling that goes on in the building. You know, really building and designing the space in a way that that promotes recycling as part of the basic lifestyle of being an occupant of that building. So, you know, natural light, fresh air, all kinds of great stuff. And, and uh, it's really a beautiful building and a wonderful building to work in.
0: You know, I was amazed by, by how much how many things can really be recycled, for example? You were talking about the construction of a building yeah. and the dumpsters, and yeah. what could you tell us about that?
1: Yeah, the uh, the recycling effort, you know, uh, it starts at the very beginning. Um, you know, if anybody's ever been involved with a construction project, any construction project, you know, generates a tremendous amount of waste. And uh, at the very beginning of this project, we set the standard for all the subcontractors that were working on the job that we wanted to recycle as much as we possibly could. And so we set up big containers out on the job site and put you know plywood signs next to them that said you know this is uh, this is for wood and this is for cardboard and this is for you know steel or whatever it might be. Um, and as we went through the entire project, we kept track of this and. Out of a dozen dumpsters, uh, we only ended up sending one to the landfill. 11 dumpsters worth of, of I and mean, these are 40 yard containers, uh, ended up getting recycled uh, and only one went to the landfill. So when you think about just one small change in the way that you approach the construction of a project can have a big impact, obviously.
0: You were also talking earlier about uh, the use of solar power yep. and how strongly your company has embraced that. Could you explain how, what uh, some of what you've done and then also how it pays for itself?
1: Sure. Um, You know, we're very passionate about solar energy. Um, Our our CEO, I mean, and a lot of the stuff that we do is supported at the highest levels of our organization by our board and by our leadership. Um, And and so uh, the CEO set out a goal a few years ago that we wanted to do a solar power project on the East Coast and the West Coast. And uh, I was in charge of those projects. And in California, we ended up putting up a 1.19 megawatt solar array. Uh, so, it's about 7,700 panels, more or less. So, the reason we did solar power uh, is many fold. But, first of all, um, you know, what we sell is food, organic and natural food, but it's food nonetheless. And a bigger component of our, our food that we sell is refrigerated and frozen product. And so, um, as a result, our footprint for the energy consumption gets larger and larger. Right now in California, 15% of the floor area, about 72,000 square feet, is dedicated to refrigeration, and that 15% of the building consumes 45% of the total energy uh, in the entire warehouse. So uh, we had the ability to go ahead and uh, we had separate meters for just for the refrigeration piece, uh, and we tied our solar system uh, into the refrigeration. And what we saw was, you know, just a dramatic decrease in the amount of uh, energy that we consume. Uh, we went from consuming about, you know, on a summer day, 20 to 25,000 kilowatts uh, of electricity, kilowatt hours of electricity uh, in a month, down to five or 6,000 kilowatt hours of electricity off the grid. So, uh, you know, it can have a huge impact. We anticipate that we're going to cut our electric bill in California by 34%. Uh, And our full-year projections of how much we thought we were going to generate are running about 12 to 14% ahead of what we projected. So uh, it's really uh, a wonderful project. And um, what happens is, you know, through a variety of of things, uh, one of them being a federal tax credit. There's a 30% federal tax credit for renewable energy, uh, one of them being a a production credit from the – California Social, uh, uh, social the uh, solar uh, initiatives, where they're paying us a rebate for every kilowatt hour of AC energy that gets produced. Now, understand there's a difference between DC and AC. Solar power gets generated in DC. You have to step on it through the use of an inverter to go ahead and get AC energy out. And so California actually rebates the consumers based on actual energy production. Um, and so what we do is, uh, you know, we're getting a, a rebate check of some amount uh, every single month for every AC kilowatt hour of energy that we produce and take off the grid. And obviously, what's happening is it's being used to, you know, fuel our energy consumption directly. And the great thing about solar power is it's distributed energy. It's right on top of the building that we're using. Uh, We don't have to build high-tension lines to get it to our refrigeration system. It's right there, and uh, we drop it into the system through a net metering process. So we did that project in California, 1.19 megawatt. We're very proud of a system of that size. Uh, certainly, within our industry, it's it's the largest of its kind. Uh, and then we came back to Connecticut, and uh, we did a 550 kilowatt system in Connecticut, which turned out to be the largest system in New England. Uh, and so uh, that system uh, has a slightly longer payback because we don't get quite as much sunshine as Northern California. Uh, but you know, in California, we're thinking about a four and a half year payback, and in Connecticut, it's closer to six or seven years before we get the payback. Now, to put things in perspective. The solar panels themselves are warranty for 25 years. Um, so if in California I've paid this thing off in five years, that means I've got 20 years of free electricity to be able to use on that project going forward. And when you think about what you, what's going to happen with the price of electricity, you know, it's only going to go up as time goes on. We don't think it's going to go down. And so if I'm getting 35% of my total electrical energy to run my refrigeration systems from the sun, and I've paid for it already, you know, Potentially, I've got a competitive advantage against other people in my space who I'm competing against because they have to obviously spend more money for power than I will. So there's a really long-term investment. And one of the things that's important is to look at the life of the system much more so than what's the short-term return. Because when you start adding up all those dollars that you're saving you know, 20 years from now and you can make some estimates about what you think the cost of energy is going to be, it's a pretty significant number.
0: Those numbers are so compelling. Great, reduced, greatly reduced energy costs. Twenty years of free energy use. Good for the environment. Why is everybody not doing it?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, that's a good question. I mean, they're they're expensive. You know, right now, without the government subsidies, uh, solar p- power is is a much more challenging prospect. And Connecticut uh, and California are the two states that really lead the nation when it comes to helping to support this. The goal, in my mind, you know, our reason for doing this is to promote awareness about solar power. But more importantly, we want to see solar power get to the point where we start to see a cost reduction on the panels themselves. You know, when there's more demand and more people manufacturing solar panels and solar cells, then you're going to see you know the economies of scale, and you're going to see prices come down. And as those prices come down, the the subsidy that needs to be you know helped through local rebates or the federal government can be reduced. Uh, And, you know, there's word right now that China is in the process of developing some large-scale solar power manufacturing plants. And, uh, you know, I'm hopeful that that'll
0: help drive the cost of solar energy down for everyone. Wouldn't it be nice if if the government stepped up their support of this rather than scaled it back as the equipment gets less expensive? because then more people would take it on, there would be a quicker return on it. That's exactly
1: right. That's exactly right. And, you know, in, in order to give you a sense of perspective, um, when, when you look at how much solar uh, radiation hits the planet every single year, in order for the entire energy profile of the world uh, to be satisfied by solar power uh, would require a solar array about the size of the state of Arkansas. You know, so, you know, I, I'm sorry, and it just putting that into perspective, that's just, it's not even that much when you think about it. It's not that big of an area. And when you can distribute it and you don't have to put on uh, high tension lines, you know, we love wind. Wind is great. It's it's free. It, it's natural. Uh, but, you know, if it's in western South Dakota, you got to get it to population centers for people to be able to use it. And there's infrastructure involved in that. And so when you, when you fly over a distribution center as you're landing in some major city, look at all the empty rooftop space that's out there. And understand that they could all be generating power
0: instead of you know building new power plants. Um, given given that uh, a lot of your business is trucking food to different places, I know you've been uh, very active in the sustainability effort in that arena too. What are some of the things you've done there?
1: Well, you know, trucking is is unfortunately you know the biggest uh, CO two imprint that we have as a company. I, I can attack our energy usage on electricity through conservation and renewable energy and things like that. Um, unfortunately, in our society in the United States, everything gets delivered by truck. Everything you own is delivered and distributed by a truck, um, and so you know it's it's the ugly side of our economy is that everything has to get there almost by an 18-wheeler. Um, we've been looking at a variety of things, and you know we've enrolled in the SmartWay program, and uh, we've we've uh, increased our our efficiency on the fleets uh, through the types of fuel that we use, the oils we use. Uh, you know things that uh, deflect wind and, and become more efficient. So we've seen a decrease in our CO2 footprint on, on you know as part of that. Um, the other thing we do is we have some uh, organizational tools for route management for our trucks that we use. Um, and that helps us to uh, locate facilities. Uh, you know, when we go out and pick a site now, uh, mileage to the customer is a really very critical consideration. When we're making a decision about where to be, because we can take our miles through the use of software. Uh, I know who my customers are. I can tell you from this decision for this location or that location, uh, where you know is going to be the better mileage impact. Uh, we just opened a facility in Florida uh... last year and we saved three million miles uh... that we were driving already to deliver food to those customers just by locating a distribution center closer to where they are so uh, i think in the past uh, distribution companies have looked at you know larger and larger facilities that are consolidated in one part of the country well as fuel becomes a more and more important part of what we do Uh, we've taken the opposite approach, and we're trying to put distribution centers closer to our customers so we can reduce our mileage and thereby reduce our our carbon footprint as well.
0: I imagine some of the people listening as they hear this discussion about uh, trucks and fuel costs and things like that are wondering about biofuels. What's your impression of that? Yeah, You know,
1: biofuels are great uh, if you could grow them sustainably, but unfortunately uh, biofuels, as they're currently uh, in the marketplace today, uh, really don't have a great environmental uh, or social impact when you think about it. Um, we don't use biofuels. We tested them. They, they work fine. Uh, we did a B20 blend uh, down in New Mexico. We tested on a couple trucks, and, and they performed fine. Uh, we did a, a 5% of B5 blend uh, in, in Pennsylvania. We've tried it around the country, uh, and, and uh, unfortunately, uh, the large-scale uh, biodiesels that are out there just have a negative impact uh, on on people. I mean, when you're trading food for fuel, uh, it's just never a good situation. And we can't believe that it's a sustainable solution. Uh, and when you peel back the onion and you look at the impact on third world countries or or people that rely on our excess corn supply to go ahead and, and be a basic staple of their diet, uh, there's definitely human impact for some of this. On top of the fact that most of the, the, the food crops that are grown to make uh, fuel, whether it's ethanol or or biodiesel, uh, tends to be genetically modified food sources as well. Uh, And it's just something we don't want to support. And so we don't do that. Uh, One thing I didn't mention earlier is that um, we did experiment with uh, 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 a turkey fat biodiesel. And, Mm -hmm. And that one actually is pretty compelling uh, and, and 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 kind of fun. Uh, you have a waste product that that comes out of the poultry industry, uh, whether it's chicken fat or turkey fat. There is a, a bio oil that's available there. Uh, and for a while, we had a fleet in Florida that was being used as a uh, a B5 blend of of uh, you know animal oils. Um, that tends to be only in warmer climates because uh, uh, the uh, the cloud factor uh, in that kind of an oil is a little bit different than it would be in a vegetable oil so you have to be careful about where you use it um, but we found that to be you know taking something that otherwise would go to a waste stream and converting that into an energy source and we thought that was pretty compelling so there are some biofuels at work uh, and then the one that we're most excited about uh, is is algae based biofuel and uh, you know what we see is when we talk about sustainability um, When you look at food crops and how much oil they produce, uh, you know, corn is is absolutely the worst crop of all of them out there as far as how many gallons of oil it produces uh, an acre. Uh, The best uh, food crop uh, that you can go ahead and get uh, oil out of is palm oil, and that generates about 750 gallons an acre. Uh, Per year uh, in palm oil. Unfortunately, palm oil is also a staple of many diets in third world countries. And so, as you change palm oil to fuel oil, uh, again, you're driving prices up and, and having an impact on people's. Uh, daily lives. When we talk about algae, uh, we're talking about potentially 5 to 10,000 gallons per acre for algae uh, and the amount of oil that can be produced. So this is really a very compelling solution in our mind, and we're working with uh, one or two companies and trying to find a way to go ahead and test pilot some some algae-based biodiesel uh, in our fleets out in California right now. And, and we're hopeful that we'll see something within the next 12 to 18 months that we can be out there talking
0: about on that front. If we think about the impressive changes your company has made in changing its own footprint and uh, developing more sustainable practices, part of that are the things you do, like the, the way you construct your buildings and where you put solar panels and the like. But there's a people part of this as well, isn't there? And I, yeah. you were talking earlier about having um, you know more desirable parking spaces for people that drive f- fuel-efficient cars, green teams that are part of the company. Tell us about that and how important it is to have people engaged in this whole process. Well,
1: you know, the green teams are really, um, you know, there, there's the stuff that we, we just did and we didn't talk about it, and so we're trying to do a better job communicating. And that's not only external communication, but that's internal communication as well. Um, and when you have a company with over 5,000 employees, it's really hard to get the message to everybody uh, about what you're doing uh, on solar panels or whatever it might be. So um, as a company, what we've done is we've gone out, and in just about every facility we have around the country, uh, we've established green teams, which are usually get one representative from every department in any given building, and this team meets on a monthly basis, and they work on green projects, uh, unique and individual to wherever they are. Uh, So in Iowa City, they might be doing a creek cleanup. Uh, in Connecticut, they might be doing an you know, organic farm fair, um, you know, a, another place are doing a, a birdhouse building contest using only recycled materials, you know, so there's a really a lot of neat stuff that goes on, and we let those green teams kind of work on the things that are important to them, uh, and they're budgeted through my department, uh, and there's, you know, literally, you know, probably about 100 people or so, or maybe a little bit more than that now, uh, voted, you know, working on green teams uh, around the United States, and, and they're part of that message and getting it out to all the employees and talking to people in their departments and organizing events and functions and earth activities and things like that. So the green teams are really great. One of the things you talked about uh, was the uh, the car parking and uh, you know as your company grows, sometimes your parking gets further and further away. And uh, unfortunately, where I work in Connecticut, you know, it feels like about a quarter mile away where I have to park in order to go ahead and get to the front door. And so uh, in in these buildings, these new green LEED certified buildings and many other projects around the country, we're starting to prefer uh, put preferred parking in uh, for 15, 16 different cars uh, that can be parked right by the front door. Uh, for uh, cars that are fuel-efficient. all right, And so what that means is it's not just hybrids, uh, but there's a long laundry list of about 30 to 40 cars that uh, meet the criteria for being a highly fuel-efficient car. And if you happen to drive one of those cars, then you get to go ahead and park by the front door. And so if you think about you know small ways that you can make changes, What about, you know, the guy who has to drive by those empty spots every day in order to go ahead and and park at at the other end of the parking lot? And next time he's going out and making a a car buying decision, is that going to be impacted by, geez, if I got this kind of car, I could park right by the front door and have a better spot. So I think, you know, small changes like that can be fun. Uh, We've also got carpooling programs that are supported by our green teams where we can get people to do ride share and things like that. We're, We're supporting them with gift cards and you know we have rules and regulations around that, but you know they really drive a lot of the energy that happens throughout the company at a local level. Uh, you know I'm out here doing presentations and talking, you know, on different stages, but it's great when the message can get driven down uh, to everybody in the organization.
0: You know, just to follow up a little bit on this people part of things, um, certainly there are reasons that the sustainability effort can pay off for you, including saving energy costs. But I wonder if you've seen any evidence yet or expect to see evidence of your company being uh, even more competitive than it is in hiring the best people, because people care about this as a value. Uh, yeah.
1: It, it's, it's uh, like Yesterday, I did a presentation for our HR team uh, in Connecticut. We had everyone from the eastern region of the U.S. There's about uh, 16 or 17 HR managers uh, from around the regions and the first question i asked is you know is this important and i got stories back about how important it was and how you know people want to work for a company they can feel good about you know you don't want to work for a company that's polluting or you know (laughs) doing all kinds of you know nasty trading scandals or whatever it might be you want to work for a company you can be proud of and when we talk about these green initiatives uh, people are really proud of the fact they work for a company that sells organic and natural food and has this kind of level of commitment to the environment. Uh, it's it's incredibly important, uh, and and so much so that. Uh, I know that there was a board member that, we, that just joined our, our, our board of directors uh, within the last couple of years and mentioned that one of the compelling reasons why he decided to join the board at UNFI was because of our position on environmental issues. And that's not just from the board level. I mean, that, that's even some senior you know executives and some highly qualified people that when making a choice about where do you want to work, You know, sometimes that's an important consideration. You want to feel good about where you work and the company you work for. And so, yeah, I think there's some retention associated with it. I think it helps us in recruiting. uh, And it helps people feel good about where they work and who they work for.
0: So it sounds like it's such a positive thing on so many levels. It
1: is. But, you know, it's a challenge because it's not measurable. You know, Uh, in many ways, a lot of this uh, is difficult to gauge how effective it is. Um, but you know, when you listen to people and you talk to people, y- you get the message, you know, even retailers are like, you know, I really appreciate the fact that your company's doing these kinds of things. So it can have an impact for sure.
0: Well, it's nice you get a lot of measurable impacts. And then in that area where there are impacts, but they can't be measured, you can always default to the fact that it's just the right thing to it's do. It's the right
1: thing to do. You can't feel bad about it when you go to sleep at night. That's for sure.
0: Right, and it sounds like your company's had a long history of yeah, having that. Yeah, as a it's value. the
1: culture of our company. Uh, you know, historically, we just haven't been real proactive about talking about it in a in a major way. And so, you know, opportunity to go ahead and come to Yale and speak, you know, about these issues and about our company is a great opportunity for us to spread the word and and, and talk about sustainability in a broader way and show that. You know, even a $3 billion company can have a big impact on the way that they run their business and how it affects the environment. So, so one thing I'd that. like
0: I'd like to ask you about in, in uh, closing was something that you referred to along the way and that has to do with genetically modified foods. And in your case it comes up in several contexts. There could be genetically modified foods that are used to create fuels for example, but then of course there are genetically modified foods that enter the food supply in mm-hmm. so many ways and mm-hmm. so many different products. Uh, what are your feelings about that?
1: Well, as a company, uh, we are taking a very proactive approach to uh, to non-genetically modified food. Um, we see this as probably the biggest single uh, threat uh, to food as a as a country, and we're just amazed that more people don't know about it, uh, more people aren't aware about it. But you know, essentially, genetically modified food goes and out goes out and and modifies the DNA of the very things that we consume. Uh, And this is allowed in our country uh, through what we feel is some pretty conspicuous legislation that we think was uh, helped by big agribusiness, uh, companies that benefit from this. And, And we have a concern that this is really an unchecked problem that we really don't understand what the eventual ramifications are. Um, there are several studies that have been done uh, looking at, you know, lab animals and things like that um, where, where there's some really compelling information being presented about genetically modified food, how it affects people. We're not quite sure. We think that um, it can have an impact on things like allergies, uh, can be exacerbated by genetically modified food. Uh, you think about how many people today have uh, allergies to wheat, right? How many, how many people now, gluten has become a huge, you know, component of what we sell as a company. You know, gluten-free products, uh, something you never heard about years and years ago. But as we learn more about it, you wonder why we're developing these aversions to certain types of food. And you have to wonder if some of it's the root cause, you know, is the way that we're tinkering with the way that food is grown. Um, and it, and you know, from my understanding of it, and, and I'm certainly not the key expert on this issue for our company. Um, but, you know, it's more of a shotgun approach. You know, you think that, oh, they're going in and they're modifying this one, you know, strain of DNA to go ahead and make these tomatoes a little bit more ripe or whatever it might be. And really what they're doing is just taking, you know, fish DNA and inserting it into some vegetables, and they don't know what the outcome is going to be. And so that's concerning when really this, we feel, has been brought to the marketplace, you know, unnecessarily. Uh, And obviously as, as purveyors of organic food, we think that growing food naturally uh, is, a, is a much more uh, less dangerous way of consuming food. When we look at biofuels, uh, you know, we understand that a lot of the crops that are being used for biofuels are genetically modified crops. And so we see the support of biodiesel, you know, as another way of supporting genetically modified food. And we're trying to build awareness within uh, the consumer community that buys our food about genetically modified food and why it's different. And, uh, in fact, our company is on the leading edge of trying to create some labeling process, much like the organic label, um, that tells people that uh, the product you're buying is not genetically modified.
0: You know, it's amazing to think about how little Americans know about this issue or care about it. And um, we were talking before about how the Europeans have been paying attention to this issue for years, and it really has affected what what type of foods Europeans are willing to buy. Absolutely. Labeling on foods and all that sort of thing. Absolutely.
1: I think they used the term uh, frankenfoods back then. Uh, and it was part of a big public awareness campaign. Uh, but here in the United States, it was just like, yeah, go ahead and do it. That's fine. It looks like it's okay. And, and you know, certainly I don't think anything's hit the New England Journal of Medicine. this there's it a direct cause and effect. Um, but when you read some of the books, uh, you know, like Genetic Roulette uh, or some of the other books related to genetically modified food, you look at some of the studies that are being done that, that weren't really considered when they're, you know, looking at the... Uh, the laws uh, I think there's some pretty compelling stuff out there that people should pay attention to so
0: you know, I was mentioning that I uh, have created a slide that I use and talk some that shows the the 10 countries in the world that have the most acres planted with genetically modified foods. America's number one on that list. And if you take take all the the acreage of the next nine after the U.S. and add it all up, it still comes to less acres than what the U.S. produces in genetically modified foods. So people don't generally recognize how many of their foods have been affected by genetic modification.
1: Pretty much everything you eat. It's really difficult to buy food that's not genetically modified anymore. When you think about, uh, there's a there's a great movie out called King Corn. I don't know if you've seen it, mm-hmm. but uh, you know, when you look at how pervasive corn is in the diet of every single American on the planet, even if you don't like corn. You're eating corn all the time, whether it's in uh, you know the fructose corn syrup, or or you know in in the, the tortilla chips or whatever it is. Corn's in just about everything uh, that we consume as Americans and a lot of it genetically modified, you know, and, and through big agribusiness business as, as a result. So it's amazing, and it, and, we, and we think it's a problem, and we're trying to be proactive and bringing people's awareness to it, much like the organic standards that we developed.
0: Good. Well, it's very interesting to hear your sp- perspective on that. Uh, Tom, thank you so much for joining us. This was just an absolutely amazing uh, day with you that we spent finding out about what your company has done and how impressive the gains are on this and, and how you folks have— have brought together concern about the environment and wanting to do a good thing with uh, with a real business model. And it's nice to see that those two things can go together, and I can only imagine the number of other companies that this will serve as a model for. So thank you for sharing that with well, us.
1: Well, thanks for being here. My appreciation for your interest in our company.
0: Thank you. So our guest today was Tom Zicke, who is the Vice President of Sustainable Development for United Natural Foods, and executive officer responsible for environmental initiatives there. Um, I, Welcome you to this podcast and to learn about others through our website at www.yalerudcenter.org. And on the website, we offer a free monthly email newsletter about food and food policy issues, a variety of resources, and as I mentioned, a list of the other excellent podcasts that we've had. Thank you.